there came a time when I was like, yo, enough is enough. I'm getting this money from you. I'm getting it. And also, if you are especially a black writer, people are going to hit you up during Black History Month. They're going to hit you up during Juneteenth. And they're going to try to give you crumbs and say, get full off of this. What's good? I'm Nikisha Elise Williams, and this is Black and Published, bringing you the journeys of writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. Today's guest is Mateo Ascarapur, author of the novel Black Buck. A consummate salesman, Mateo has taken elements from his time in a tech startup and mixed it with the weird and absurd to reflect back to the world, life, and an environment as the one and only. I always say that there's a fine line between cult and culture. So for me, though, when I left, I had to figure out who am I? By the time it came for Black Buck, I had little to no fear. <laughs> I was I was ready to write, again, the book that I wanted and the way that I wanted for the people I wanted to resonate with. Um, and I was prepared to go really, really hard. After working on two manuscripts and teaching himself the craft of writing, Mateo explains how he knew Black Buck was the one. Plus, the moment he learned to balance the desires of his head and the wants of his heart when it comes to his art. And Mateo breaks down his experience from the glitz of tech to sleeping in his old room at his parents' house to being told not to pass up a publisher who stood behind him for more money. Oh yeah, Mateo runs the numbers and gives us a little sales pitch when Black and Published continues. Are you ready? Ready. Okay, so Mateo, first question. When did you know that you were a writer? Wow. Um, that's a hard one. <laughs> Robert Jones Jr. told me that you came with some fire. And the reason why it's hard is because there's a difference, at least in my life, from when I looked at myself as a writer and when I took writing seriously. Mm. I took writing seriously in 2016. I remember it clear as day. May 21st, 2016 is when I began writing, writing while I was still working at a startup and in sales. What is so specific about May 21st, 2016, that like the day is forever ingrained in your mind as like, this the day I started, this the day I'm a writer. Yeah, I got I got a lot of dates ingrained in my mind throughout this journey. May 21st, 2016 is when I began writing fiction. In the beginning of 2016, I became disillusioned in the world that I was in of sales and startups. So I turned to writing at first as an outlet. I was writing essays and articles about sales and startups because it was what I knew best at the time. And then as time went on and I began to divorce myself further from the company that I was working at, the company where I was a, I was a young boss, you know, a young director, um, I said fiction is something that always held a dear place in my heart. So why don't I try my hand at it? Now, there was the desire to to try my hand at it just because but it was also mixed with some typical male bravado and arrogance because again i was i was in a place at that time 24 managing 30 people making bread where i was like why can't i write fiction why can't i write a novel so may 21st is when i began and i soon realized 
why I couldn't and why it was going to be why it was going to be a much longer road than homie anticipated. Because I was going to ask you, like, so was it hard? And that 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 first manuscript that I worked on, and then a second one, completely different than Black Buck. Nothing like Black Buck. Um, Black Buck came about in November 2017 in terms of when I when I began to force the idea. But another date is January 8th, 2018. That's the evening that I began writing Black Buck, that I began writing the author's note, which maybe I'll read from in a bit. Oh, we're going to talk about that author's note. Because like I was reading it and then I was like, wait, it says author's note. And then yeah. it signed Buck. I'm like, wait, what? So you have two manuscripts that I guess that you trashed before you came to Black Buck. What were mm-hmm. you trying to write then? Ooh, a lot of it was figuring out what it meant to write, but maybe I wasn't even conscious of it at the time. And a lot of it was me playing at being a writer that I had consumed through media, whether it was reading about how writers write or watching them you know, depicted on a television show or on a film. So I tried coffee shops, didn't work. I tried public libraries, didn't work. I tried writing in the morning, didn't work. I tried writing after work, didn't work. And then I realized that I could, I could get it done if I were to, again, take care of myself, rest on Fridays and then write on Saturdays and maybe on Sundays. So the first manuscript was a burst of energy. And I was writing about a young man who was trying to find his place in the world. And he goes to Kenya in order to understand what it means to be a Black American outside of Black America. So that first novel was that. And um, the second novel was a rewrite of the first. But um, I had already spoken with some agents who rejected the first one. Um, One said that, Mateo, you have a voice, but you need to go work on plot and structure. So I Googled plot and structure and I found a book called Plot and Structure and I (laughs) bought it. And this white man, James Scott Bell, he helped me out. Like I, I taught myself how to write better with this book and how to craft a narrative. And from there, I said, all right, I'm about to get in. I outlined the hell out of it from beginning to end. It was the first time I ever did it. I wrote the novel, no agent, no book deal. That second novel had all the vigor taken out of it from the first, you know, it was too sterile. It was too me trying to pander to these people. Um, And those are those two, yeah, two, two first manuscripts until later on, I got the black book. All right. So we're getting there. But as you were talking about, you know, trying the coffee shops and trying the in the morning, the afterworks, it sounds like you tried on the persona of writer Mm. before you became the person who writes. Mm -hmm. And I like how you mentioned that you you picked up a book to try to learn plot and structure, but then found that the voiciness of who you are as an author was tamed because you were trying to put yourself in this box. Mm. So. And stepping outside of that box and allowing yourself, I'm, I'm assuming, the creativity to do what you do best and have those bursts of energy. You said there was another date for you when you started Black Buck in January. What was that date like? Yeah. By that point, before January, I was at how I described it, creative rock bottom. Um, I was back at my parents house i moved back there and um i left that job that i was working at and um i'm like you know who did i think i was to be able to write a novel and all of that bravado that i had was sucked out the room it was a necessary humbling though so it was at that point with the help another white man stephen king (laughs) i read his book on writing and that book he just 
spoke so directly in that book was like, yo, this was my journey. I'm mad prolific. I work mad hard, but all of my books come from the question of um, how do I put certain characters into a scenario and then over the course of a couple hundred pages, get them out of these scenarios or not. So that simplicity really hit me. And I said, whoa, why have I been avoiding facing a few themes that have been staring me in my face that I haven't contended with sales, race and startups Mm. and the world that I had left? So over the course of a couple months, I just honed it in my head. And then January 8th, where the spark hit me, I don't even write at night. It was evening. I was at my parents' house. That's where I was living for around a year and some change. And the author's note just poured out of me. The Mm -hmm. voice of Darren just poured out of me. And um, I didn't know all the characters that were going to be in the book. I damn sure didn't know about all these different twists and turns. I knew about the main twist at the end. I knew that. Um, But I had to figure out how to fill it all in and how to get the reader from A to Z, where A keeps on ratcheting up and ratcheting up and ratcheting up all the way to Z. And uh, yeah, you, you brought up how it was signed by Buck. I knew that I wanted the book to be written from his perspective. Before we go any further about the writing, what were you selling? Because I, I yeah. now I want to know. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's funny because you put me back. Like when you asked that question, I'm back in that office. But what I was selling were licenses to a learning management system. So people at say McDonald's, if they needed to train their employees, as you know, all of these organizations have training, they can use our platform, I say our, you know, when I was working there, our platform in order to upload their own content, their own training videos, and also distribute tests that people can take for their certifications, while at the same time making use of our uh, library of 60 to 90 second videos, because we found that this concept of micro learning helps people digest larger topics and short bite-sized amounts so that they can retain them for longer periods of time. Nikisha, you see how this is still in me? I haven't been in that office since 2016. It's still in me. <laughs> it's still like you in got me. the whole elevator pitch from Yo. the first to the 31st floor down. And I remember the objections. Why can't we just do this our own? Well, Sally, you definitely could do it on your own. But what we found is that people often try and then they realize that they've wasted time and money. So they come to us anyway, but feel free to do it on your own. That what I just did was sort of what Darren did to the reverse sale. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Where, where you're not being aggressive, you know, you're saying go ahead and do it. Um, but you'll find as many other people have found that I was right. And if I was wrong, then that's okay too, because I got a buku amount of other people that, you know, I'll be working with. (laughs) I love how that's still in you. It actually scares me that it's still in me because, because I'm not going to front. There are things that I had to work through and get through and work to let go of, to become a better person before I could even become a writer. But part of me, Nikisha knows that they're still dormant in me. And I need to choose in every interaction, every situation of who I'm going to be. I get that. I spent 11 years in television producing. Wow. Exactly. So like how to do a show, run a show, that whole compartmentalizing of things is still very much in me. I apply all of those skills to how I do this podcast, but it's different Mm. because it's mine. So Mm. 
in learning, trying to become a better person, what were some of those characteristics that you that you just mentioned that you had to let go of to become who you are now and this version of you as a writer? Oof. This is a tough one because like I'm enslaved in a way, um, mm. at least in this modern age, of course, you know, can't be thrown around these metaphors too much. Um, when I left that company that I was working at, I had anxiety for a minute because I didn't know who I was without that title. The beginning of this podcast, I listed, right? Young boss, director, managing 30 people. I was making all this bread, right? All of those types of things, plus the influence and power that I had within this organization of a couple hundred people. It's a vacuum that these people create. Um, I always say that there's a fine line between cult and culture. So for me, though, when I left, I had to figure out who am I? I had to figure out who I was and who I wanted to be. I had to learn how to ground myself. I had to learn when to take it fast, when to take it slow. But I think more than anything, I had to achieve a sense of balance between my head and my heart. Mm. So then how does that balance carry with you after you've written the the first draft of Black Buck into trying to get an agent and get it published? What does that look like? Because I don't think there's a lot of balance when you're trying to get published and it is more head than it is heart because mm-hmm. it is about the marketing can this sell, will this sell, mm-hmm. are you pandering and all of those things. So what did that look like for you? During this year of 2018, when I was writing Black Buck, I was publishing a lot of personal essays to get my credits up and perhaps subconsciously to expose myself to the comments and criticism of, criticisms of other people. And the things I was writing about, they weren't just like a walk in the park. I was writing about traumatic experiences. And that's something I had to reckon with as well. Like, am I just perpetrating trauma porn? Mm. You know, because these people love our tears. And I've been exposed to people saying really, really, really wild stuff to me about personal experiences. So by the time it came for Black Buck, I had little to no fear. Mm-hmm. I was I was ready to write again the book that I wanted and the way that I wanted for the people I wanted to resonate with. Um, and I was prepared to go really, really hard. So after I wrote the first draft, did I think that I had a book that would have this impact on my hands? I wasn't sure, but I knew that it felt good. And when I was going into my second draft, I had gotten accepted into the Rhode Island Writers Colony. And this is a group, right, as you know, of predominantly Black writers, and Jason Reynolds is a part of it. Mm. And Jason said something to me while I was at this colony that has stuck with me. He said, Mateo, understand that an agent would be lucky to work with you. He said an agent would be lucky to represent this work. And having him say that, as well as the rest of my cohort, these wonderful women, who were championing my voice and my work and who believed in me, that gave me even more confidence. Because the confidence that I had when I started out with my first manuscript, you know, when I was still working in sales, that was a little flimsy, nothing really to stand on. But at this point, my confidence had been rebuilt with a firmer foundation, a more healthy foundation. So now when it came time, many months later, after working on a third draft to go out to agents, I wasn't on some arrogant Oh, well, I got I got the next best thing. But I was more so, no, we are going to be partners mm. in this. And to keep it all the way real, an agent works for you. <laughs> so so point is that when I went out to all of these people, I had done the necessary upfront work 
in order to understand my intentions, in order to understand what I had, in order to be able to present it in a confident manner so they would know what time it was. And coming from that place has made my entire journey so much easier and so much smoother. That's awesome. Um, You talk about in the acknowledgments when you, I'm not sure if it was your agent or your editor, but they understood that you were writing a sales manual. Yeah. How did it feel to be seen in that way by someone who is not living in your head? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I remember exactly where I was uh, after I after I, I left my full time job. It wasn't like I just left my full time job to pursue a career in writing. I don't got it like that. You know, I had to figure out ways to avoid being a, a starving artist. And um, one way was to consult with tech startups across North America. I was in San Francisco. Uh, working with a a client at the time that I had this call with my former agent. And I say former with love, but I remember the call that I had with her and where I was in San Francisco. And she said, you know, Mateo, this really, this feels like a sales manual. My first thought was, wait a second. There was no place for her to read that. She's not trying to G me right now. She can't finesse me right now because there's no way she read that. So this is real. And I said, whoa. So you asked, how does it feel? It felt good. It feels so good to feel seen because I found that it's such a rare thing <laughs> to be genuinely seen by someone or to, or to have your work genuinely seen. So then what was the process like in taking the book to market? Mm-hmm. One of the many things that I liked about my former agent is that she didn't gas me up. She is conservative in the way that she will work with someone. She and I never discussed money. And I appreciated it. She never tried putting any figures in my head. She never tried setting any guarantees or expectations. If anything, she hedged her bet. And she would say, Mateo, it's hard to sell fiction these days. I got to let you know. But I believe in this story. And I believe in you. But it's hard to sell fiction. So when it came to going to market, we had done the requisite work to get the manuscript into its best shape. So um, she went out. And then we started to get some interest as well as rejections. It's not like everyone saw this and was like, yo, we need this. However, um, maybe a week or two later, she said, hey, an an editor wants to speak with you. They haven't made an offer yet, but you could speak with her if you want. And I said, yeah, like, let's go. Because I had done all the prerequisite work, I wasn't on some, tell me, tell me everything that we're going to do. Tell me exactly. I had my vision and it was about whether she was going to hinder or help me hone it. And it became clear that she wasn't trying to get in there and change the guts of this project. So after I get off the call, I speak to my agent and I was like, man, that was a, that was a great call. And she said, hold up. I'm getting a call on the other line. It's her. And she says, Mateo, you just got a preemptive offer from her. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, I got an offer. And then business brain kicked in and I said, bet if this is our first offer, let's go to an auction <laughs> with, with these other people. And again, I told you about how my former agent is and she counseled me on why or how an auction could potentially backfire. I also called up Jason and Jason said, Mateo, you have this whole publisher behind you. He said, interest and intention over money always. Hmm. And he said, you already have these people behind your back. Could you go get a bigger deal from someone else perhaps? But just having 
the intention and interest of these people and how much they believe in you in this work is going to take you farther than perhaps getting, you know, an even bigger deal. And he said, also the deal that you got <laughs> in Jason fashion, he said, it ain't nothing to sneeze at. And <laughs> I was like, word. So uh, we accepted that deal. And it was one of the best decisions in my career that I've ever made. All right. So before we get to the book, I have one more question. I want to talk about money. Let's talk about it. Because you said you were 24, working in sales, big boss, managing people, making bread, much like your character. Yeah. And you quit your job, but to not starve, because that's not cute. You took on consulting for sales startups, which was the area that you worked in. And then you got a deal that was nothing to sneeze at. How has money affected your relationship with your art and what you've known you always wanted to do? I consulted to avoid the starving artist trope. You know, I'm not trying to be out here acting like I was about to starve. I was at my parents' house. I was in my childhood bedroom. I didn't have a bed in there. I slept on a couch for a year, right? But like there was no there was no uh, possibility of me starving. When I was working, consulting with these people, I looked at that, my primary way of making money as my side hustle. Mm. And I looked at me and my dream and my, and, and my writing as my full-time job, even if I wasn't doing it full-time. That was my main, that was my main aspiration. So when it came time to get this book deal, like I said, nothing to sneeze at and other things because of this book, speaking with organizations and this, that, and the other. And then after you realize like, yo, you don't got to speak with them for free. You know, these are some billion dollar companies or them buying a hundred copies really isn't even that much. I don't want to discredit some people that I did that with in the beginning, but there came a time when I was like, yo, enough is enough. I'm getting the money from them. I'm getting it. If you are especially a black writer, people are going to hit you up during Black History Month. They're going to hit you up during Juneteenth and they're going to try to give you crumbs and say, get full off of this. I've had people hit me up and say, can you speak to our company during Black History Month, uh, a company of 70 people, and we'll give you $250. That's nothing. I got to let you know straight up. That's nothing. And me having been in this game. I went to crunchbase.com. Crunchbase is where people can go to look and see how much a startup has received funding. So this company that just offered me $250 had received about $20 million, maybe eight, nine months ago in funding. So I spoke to my publicist. I said, this is a a, a bit insulting. Um, I'm just going to tell them no. And she said, well, see if they can buy a good amount of books. So then I said, okay, let me try to, let me try to finesse it where I'm going to tell them to buy what I, what I would have wanted as my rate, but in books <laughs> and see what they say. And they peeped what it was and they saw how much it was going to be. And they're like, yo, at this time, we can't do that. You know, apologies. And we kept it moving. But to answer your question directly, Nikisha, um, how has commerce and the commodification of art influenced my relationship with my work? It hasn't. I can't let it. Mm. Because then, then I'm going to be writing for trends. And I'm going to be writing to try to just like make a ton of bread. I believe that I am in a position in at this at this crossroads in my career that if I continue to do my work in my way and maintain my level of authenticity, I will eat and I will eat well, you know, um, while also understanding the Keisha, the very real fact that tomorrow this could all go away. What's hot today could be cold tomorrow. I'm aware of that. 
And if I ever find myself getting caught up or obsessing over things that have nothing to do with the work or being in service of other people, um, I try to check myself or hopefully one of the many people that I trust close to me will check me as well. Hmm. Thank you. Let's get to this book. Let's go. All right, Black and Published family, it's time for the reading. Black Buck is a novel that follows 24-year-old Darren Buck Vender from working at Starbucks to running a tech startup. The shift in position changes his character and forces him to decide whether he will be accountable for his actions or sucked in by the culture of his environment, leaving the life he had with his loved ones behind. Here's Mateo. I will just read the author's note. There's nothing like a black man on a mission. No, let me revise that. There's nothing like a black salesman on a mission. He's Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, and any other supernatural, paranormal, or otherwise godlike combination of blood, flesh, and brains. He can't die. Don't believe me? MLK. Yes, Martin Luther King Jr. was a black salesman. In the same way used car salesmen hawk overpriced hunks of metal that break down once an unsuspecting customer drives off the lot, our man ML to the goddamn K was a salesman to the highest degree. Not only did he sell black people on the vision of a unified America, but he also sold the United States Supreme Court, which at the time contained nine white men, the hardest decision makers for any black man to convince. MLK, Malcolm X, James Baldwin, Jean-Michel Basquiat, and Frederick Douglass were all salesmen. Hell, Nina Simone, Rosa Parks, Harriet Tubman, and every other black woman who achieved any leap of success was a saleswoman. Oprah, hide a BMW under your seat. Winfrey is a saleswoman. You get the point. Each and every one of these people was selling something more precious than gold. A vision. A vision for what the world could look like if millions of people were to change their minds. The hardest thing to change. How do I fit into all of this? When will I shut up and get to the point? Don't worry, I'm getting there. I'm a black man on a mission. No, I'm a black salesman on a mission. And the point of this book, which I'm writing from my penthouse overlooking Central Park, is to help other black men and women on a mission to sell their visions all the way to the top. So high up that I'll have to crane my neck, like one of those goofy white people in films deciding whether a superhero was a bird or a plane, just to catch a glimpse of them before they're out of sight. Whoosh, bang, poof, the great disappearing act of success. My goal is to teach you how to sell. And if I'm half the salesman every newspaper, blog, and hustler in New York City says I am, then you are in luck. With my story, I will give you the tools to go out and create the life you want, to overcome every seemingly impossible obstacle, to fix the game. Which game, you ask? We'll get there. But before we do, I'm going to ask you to do three things. Number one. Let down your guard and open your mind to what I'm going to tell you. I know we're strangers right now. You're likely asking yourself why you should trust me. The good thing is that you already bought this book. So you trusted me enough to part with $26. I won't let you down. Number two, understand that I want all people to be successful. But in the same way that Starbucks can't just give out mocha frappuccinos to anyone who doesn't have $14, I can't help everyone. So I'm starting with black people. If you're not black, but have this book in your hands, I want you to think of yourself as an honorary black person. Go on, do it. Don't go down blackface in an afro, but picture yourself as black. And if you want, you can even give yourself a fancy black name like Jamal, Lamani, or Asia. Number three, say every day is deals day and clap your hands. I know it's strange, but do it. 
And when you do, think of the number one thing you're working toward. It may be a new car, a promotion, someone's affection, or an expensive pair of shoes. Whatever it is, think of it and say, every day is deals day. And clap your hands as loud as you can. As you'll find out, every day is deals day. A day without deals is like a camel without humps. It doesn't exist. At this point, your heart's beating and there's a twinkle in your eye. I know because I've given this speech before. I've given it to myself. I've given it to thousands of people wanting to change their lives. And I've given it to people who didn't know they wanted to change but needed it. A long time ago, I was one of these people. I was like you, ambitious but afraid, intelligent but impotent, curious but cowardly. I was all of this and more. But freedom, true freedom, the kind where you do what you want without fear, comes at a cost. It's like my urban corner philosopher come fairy god uncle Wally Cat used to say, you can change the hands of a clock, but you can't change time. I can give you the tools to change, but only you can change yourself. And if I am successful in teaching you how to sell and fix the game, I ask that you buy another copy of my book and give it to the friend who needs it most, who is stuck like I was in need of a way out, who is blind to the game but has potential, just like you. Does that sound fair? If so, and if you can do the three things I outlined above, then we have a deal. And if we have a deal, it's time for you to do one last thing. Turn the page. Happy selling. Buck. Thank you. Was there's nothing like a black man on a mission always your first line? Yeah, it just <laughs> it, it came to me. <laughs> it came to me. It came to me. Okay. So I was reading this book. And I'm reading and I was like, okay, this is like the microaggressions that white people think is harmless. And then I was like, mm. no, this is just really racist. No, mm-hmm. I'm really uncomfortable. But I kept reading and turning the pages. It's hard. But oh, then yeah. I didn't start reading the book. What was it like for you to write some of those scenes? It was very difficult. As I said earlier, I had an amazing time writing this book. Um, I had a lot of fun. But during those times where Darren is subjected to these, at times, innocuous, but also on the other end of the spectrum, bizarre and overtly racist acts, it was tough. Um, as were the scenes when, you know, Darren hurt people as well. Um, these scenes weren't fun to write, but they were important for me to write to not just show what could actually happen in a space like this? But beyond that, I wanted to show to the reader or to serve as a mirror to black readers of me knowing what it, what it feels like. Because it's not always someone doing something as egregious and bizarre, or it's not even common for someone to do some of the egregious and bizarre acts that were taking place in this book, but it can feel like that. It can feel like the earth's crust is splitting right before you. And you're like, what is happening? Who is this person? And I am hurt and I am angry. So I wanted people who can relate to this. I wanted them to know that they are not crazy. Okay. You have a line on page 34 where Darren is going upstairs and he says, "Uh, how come no one recognizes me? And it made me think that white people only recognize black people when we're useful to them. Did you experience that as 
one of the only ones in your workplace. And then again, when you were, you know, showing up in these different areas to consult and things like that and being lowballed for your time and your value and your work. The place that I worked at had more diversity than someone in the book, S-U-M-W-N, but by no means was it the United Nations <laughs> or We Are the World, you know, <laughs> song and video. It, it wasn't any of that, right? Um, and because of the title and power that I had, there wasn't a lot of like, we don't, like where anyone wouldn't recognize me, but there definitely were people who didn't recognize, and I hate to put it this way, but my authority. And these were people who were white and wealthy. And then they come in and they see this black dude and they're like, hold up. I got to listen to him. And it took me a minute to realize what was happening. I don't even know if I knew while I was there, but only later on did I realize that for the majority of these people that I managed or were, or were managed by people who I managed, they had never had an authority figure who was not white. And for them, they were probably like, what? Or a lot of these people didn't even know any black people. So there were never any times that people wouldn't recognize me, but there are many times when people don't view you as you view yourself. Yes. Um, on page 173, I think Wally Cat is speaking to Darren. He says, the media feeds off of black blood like vampires. They want more of it and they'll pit us against each other just to see it fly like firecrackers on the 4th of July. And you know what? You gave it to them. You played into their hands. A lot of this book, as true to life as it is in the scenarios that you've created, it still reads like a spectacle. Mm. Do you feel like and all that Black people have gone through in this country, in the workplace, in all of our little nuanced and idiosyncratic lives and worlds, that we are still considered puppets or performative when it comes to the white gaze? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, we see it. <laughs> we see it in this book how there are no Black people in the workplace, but when Darren walks into it, they're playing Wiz Khalifa's "We Them Boys," like. So many of these people love to consume our culture, but they don't have love for black people, you know, or when they're watching sports players, right? Um, they look at LeBron as a product, as a commodity, and not as a person. We can be viewed as caricatures. You know, Lizzo, Lizzo said, she said, I'm not here to entertain you, but I understand that I'm entertaining. Mm. But to, to, to be utterly and completely honest, Nikisha, part of the work that I do today is caring less and less about what people think of me and my work. At the end of the book, on page 365, you have this touching moment between Darren and the news anchor, and she cries into his chest. <laughs> and he says, you know, these people who may have still hated me, but also, I hope, saw my humanity. And it made me wonder, is this how we win in America or is this how we begin again is for people to see our humanity? Wow. You know, there's overlap between myself and Darren. And that part, the more I thought about it, that 
stands in opposition to the way that I think mm. about things. And I wouldn't have done that. I also don't subscribe to the belief that we need to prove our humanity. Mm. I love the concept of the Black Lives Matter movement, but one reason why I ever hesitated to say publicly Black Lives Matter is because who am I saying that to? Mm. Like, you know that. I know that. My mom knows that. My brothers know that. My cousins know that. My close friends know that. Um, so then I am making a plea to white people and to the police to stop killing us, which they should. But I am more so of the mind of I'm not going to waste my breath in trying to convince you that I am human <laughs> and that I don't have to be extraordinary to be breathing. To answer your question, I'm not sure. There, mm. are, there are different ways to achieving progress. There are different ways of going about rebellion and going about making a change. And it is not on me to judge however someone deems fit of achieving progress for us and also to change the world in a positive manner. Hmm. So the title, Black Book. Before mm -hmm. I knew anything about the book and I would just see the title, the term Black Buck makes me think of slavery. Yes. Because that's how Black men were considered, like bucks, like bulls, like horses to breed. Mm -hmm. Was that the intention? And was that always the name of the nickname of the character um, and, and all of that? And did you have all of that, those layers of uh, depth it built mm -hmm. in when you first conceived of it? Yes to all of that, except one. His nickname was always Buck, yes, because I did want to embed that aspect into the narrative. The title, however, however wasn't always Black Buck. It was initially fixing the game. As time went on, I was like, mm, this title isn't doing it. This title isn't doing what I want. It's like a little weak. Um, so then I was just going, I was brainstorming, and I thought about calling, calling it Buck because that was his nickname. And then the more I thought about it, I said, why don't I call it Black Buck for a variety of reasons? And none of the reasons were to unnecessarily provoke people because mad people don't even know what the term is, actually, like a lot of younger people. But older people, especially older black folk, I'll talk to them and they'll say, now, Mateo, I didn't know about your book. When I said when I read Black Buck, I said, what is this? That's but, how I felt. Yeah. But <laughs> Yeah, but, I don't know. but either someone told me just to do it or something told me to do it. And when I got in, I now I realize what you were doing and I'm with it. But that title. So there's been there's been people like that. So this is this is all to say that <laughs> this is this is all to say, Nikisha, that the. None of my intentions were to unnecessarily provoke, but my thought was I'm going to call it Black Buck because he is being treated as this commodity, as this product and not a person. But there are also many meanings to it. The, the idea of black buck also represents the black dollar. And mm. what does it mean for us to accrue some generational wealth? Because I think that there is a difference between understanding how exploitive capitalism is while also not being pro broke and not falling into that trap. 
Okay. And so what's next for you after this book? Part of it is continuing to do the work of turning my ideas into reality to positively impact people. Part of it is doing the work to be there for the people that I love and that are closest to me, continuing to be being as good of a son, friend, brother that I can be. Um, On the work front, it is more concretely working through edits on my second book, working in regards to an adaptation of Black Buck. And um, I'm doing other writing, like short stories ever so often. And uh, I'm working to do an adaptation of a short story. Then, you know, there's there's travel and things like that. So uh, all of those things are happening. Yeah, what's next is what's today. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to transition to the speed round in my game and I'll let you go before I let you go. I don't know anything about no speed round or game. Let's go. All right. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> we'll see if you can still saying that at the end. What is your favorite book? I don't have a favorite book to be completely honest, but one book that I do believe is required reading for everyone globally is King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hochschild. Who is your favorite author if you have one? I like James Baldwin for certain things. I like Ann Petrie for certain things. Chester Himes for certain things. John A. Williams, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, um, Yad Jesse, Nafisa Thompson Spires, of course, Toni Morrison, Maya Angelou. Um, there are there are different things that they have each given me and continue to give me today. Nina okay. Simone, right? All these people that I've listed before. Name a book that makes you want to burn your notebook, as Nina Mosley said in Love Jones, or retire from writing. They're just like you read it and be like, I can't do that. Like, I'm done. Nuclear Family by Joseph Hahn. And when I read that, I was like, yo, what? Like, for me, the way that I look at it, a book that would, me being like, this is inimitable. Like, I, I wouldn't even, it would take me a long time to figure out where to start. And I don't know if I'd be able to do it this way. I feel the same way about Percival Everett and Erasure. Yes. Right? The way that he writes is you cannot imitate it. The same way about Paul Beatty. The way that these people write and get it out onto the page, Toni Morrison as well. The way that these people write and get it out onto the page, I'm like, bro, I... I really, really, really we need to study this like a course to figure out how to do it in this way. Those are the types of books when I'm just like on a craft level and technical level and voice and just like, bro, what? <laughs> yeah. Who is your favorite artist? If we're talking about painting and that type of visual art, I love Jean-Michel Basquiat, someone like Nipsey Hussle, you know, who had embedded messages in his work and the way that he moved um, and how committed he was to black independence and black artistry and also black enterprise. Um, I respected that a lot. And again, you know, I, I bring her up often, Nina Simone, Mississippi, goddamn, just the way that she lived her life full, so fully and thoroughly and was in service to other people and performed her craft at such a, a high level. And, and yeah, so those are just a few. Okay. And since you're in the talks with producers, what do you think is the best book to screen adaptation? Really liked If Beale Street Could Talk. Mm. I think Barry Jenkins did an incredible job with it. Um, Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu by Celeste Ng. I read the book and I really, 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 really like the TV show. 
All right. And if money were no option, where would you go? What would you do? And where would you live? Hmm. I would be doing what I'm doing now. I mean, it'd be nice to go to Alaska for a couple of days. I've never been there. <laughs> um, and for me, it's important to go somewhere where I can do my work, but more importantly, where I have a community as well. Um, and right now in my mind, those two places would be LA or London. Mm. But if I, if, if money wasn't an object and I was taking like a year off from work, um, I would be going everywhere. I'd go to Senegal. I'd go to Ghana. I'd check out South Africa. Oh, I'd go to South Korea probably. Um, I've never been to like South Korea, Japan or China. And I just want to check him out. Our game is called Rewriting the Classics. Classic is whatever you determine it to be. Name yeah. one book you wished you would have written. 100 Years of Solitude. And if I were to have written it, I think that it would have taught me so, so much about writing to be able to have written in the way that he did that I could almost write anything. Name a book where you want to change the ending and how would you do it? Ooh. I mean, if I'm going to be honest, I don't, not, there are no books whose endings I would change. All right. And my last little messy question. Name a book that you think is overrated or overtaught and why? Yikes. <laughs> Yikes. This actually isn't hard. Um, I've never read Faulkner. I've never read Faulkner. You know, I've Me never either. I've never read some of these people. Tolstoy, Dostoevsky. I'm very cautious about the canon. A writer who I understand at a craft level while he was celebrated, but who I will likely never read again is Ernest Hemingway. I've read two of Ernest Hemingway's books. Um, and well, I read like one <laughs> and a half, sort of. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Let's, let's just let's just say I read one. And that was more than enough for me to not be vibing with this guy. Like there was a ton of sexism, racism in it. And I wasn't, I wasn't feeling, I was like, there's too many books out here. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to bring up some of the people that were taught to me when I was in school, like John Steinbeck, Nathaniel Hawthorne, but I actually enjoyed some of those books to be completely honest. I enjoyed some of them. And I was also lucky enough. We weren't reading a bunch of uh, black writers, but it was the bluest eye. Mm. I read that in high school. So alongside the Scarlet Letter, alongside of Mice and Men, I was able to be introduced to Pecola and the writing of, of Toni Morrison. And uh, that just balanced everything else out. <laughs> That's awesome. So my final question for you today, when you are dead and gone and no longer here and all of your work is left behind, what would you want someone to write about the legacy that you've left? He did his thing. Mm. He did his thing and he always did his thing and he didn't ever not do his thing. And his thing was always changing, but you still always knew that it would be his thing. <laughs> like, that's it and, and i know you know what i mean i know i know you know what i mean i do i do thank yeah. you mateo this was awesome thank you nikisha so much thank you for your questions your attention just what you do for us thank you big thank you to mateo Ascarapur for being here today on black and published make sure you check out mateo's debut novel black buck out now from mariner books and if you're not following mateo Follow him on the socials. He's at Ask Mateo on Instagram and Twitter. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, 
head to our Instagram page. It's at Black and Published, and that's B-L-K and Published. There, I've posted a bonus clip from my interview with Mateo about how it felt to write the truth about the intersections of racism, classism, and capitalism in his novel Black Book. Make sure you check it out and let me know what you think in the comments. I'll holler at y'all next week when our guests will be Lisa Williamson Rosenberg, author of the novel Embers on the Wind. I wrote a white ballet book. I wrote a white YA ballet book, and that's how I got an agent, if we're going to be very, very clear. That said, my agent is, uh, is not American. He's German and lovely and woke and curious and sweet and like wherever I want to go with my writing, he's there. He is all in. That's next week on Black and Published. I'll talk to you then. Peace. Peace.